Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Network Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Michael L. Walker, the author of Indefinite, Doing Time in Jail. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Um, well, thank you. So, um, And thank you for, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, so I'm an L.A. native, um, but I'm also an Army brat. Uh, so I was lived quite a few places around the world, but L.A. is home. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in economics. My master's and Ph.D. are in sociology. And it was during graduate school that I became interested in studying jails. Um, not purposefully so, I should say, but um, during my first year of graduate school, I ended up being arrested. And at first, I just tried to put this behind me and just, you know, think of it as a sort of a, a, a ridiculous one-off event that wouldn't ultimately define who I am. But then I got rearrested and then arrested again. And at, at some point, I ended up being um, evicted from my campus housing and expelled from the university and ended up having to surrender myself for a 180-day sentence in jail. During that time, so I had completed a year of graduate school and... Um, decided to sort of in a natural way, um, what I would say maybe an organic way, just take notes about what I was seeing there, just as a way of sort of keeping myself busy. So I didn't, I, I couldn't say I went to jail thinking I was going to do a study of jail. I certainly didn't enter graduate school thinking I was going to do that. But through experience and just sort of a, a habit of writing and paying attention to what I see, maybe what we would call people watching, um, I ended up conducting a full-on ethnography while I was there. February 7, 2008. Tell the audience about that day. So on this particular day, um, I had at this point been dealing with depression, but I was just starting to get things kind of um, under wraps a little bit. I had at this point decided that it was okay to be a black man and, and to be suffering from a mental health issue, that it was okay to go get help. And this particular day I had scheduled um, a meeting with judicial affairs with the university. And, and the whole goal of that meeting was, was to determine whether, whether or what it all to do with the fact that I had been arrested while on campus property. And, you know, the outcome of that decision of that meeting was going to determine whether I was going to be evicted, maybe whether they were going to suspend me or maybe give me a slap on the wrist. Who knows? Um, I had taken my son to school. I remember being hot that day, like really, really hot in Southern California. And I decided I was going to try to like sow a good seed in the universe. And so I, I figured out, you know, I have these traffic tickets. Let me go downtown to the courthouse and pay these traffic fines or set up a payment plan for these traffic fines. And then that'll sow a good seed in the universe. So for later on this that same day when I was supposed to have a meeting with, with uh, the university's judicial affairs committee. Well, I go down there to you know, to the courthouse to uh, set up that payment plan and I'm being arrested. It turns out that. Um, 
an earlier case, the charges had been refiled. And all that I had done was sort of smooth the uh, arrest. You know, they didn't have to come to my house to come get me. I had just showed up there in court. So I was arrested. It was my birthday. Um, I was turning 31 that day. Um, and so, it, it, you know, my birthday wasn't terribly important, but it was important in the sense that, you know, it's one of those days that it, it becomes burned in your memory because of what happens. Initially, when I started through the intake process, I was extremely angry and frustrated. It just was a, it, I had not planned for my day to go the way that, you know, that it was going. You know, I had thought I'm going to drop my son off. I'm going to go pick my son up. I'm going to go judicial affairs committee. Things will be, it, I was trying to have a positive outlook. Um, instead, I had been arrested and now I had to organize, you know, with my mother to come pick my son up. Another embarrassing moment. And I'm in jail. And I remember the custodial deputy who was working the intake desk at the, 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 was going through filling out uh, a form about just your sort of general disposition coming in. You know, what money do you have on you? What valuables do you have? And he was sort of checking boxes without asking any questions. And one of the boxes was, did you have a history of mental health um, or mood disorders of some sort? And just me being... Um, a little bit of a smart mouth, definitely being angry and frustrated. I just told him, like, yeah, you shouldn't have checked that box. And I don't even know what led me. You know, I, I, even as I'm telling you, I know that I was frustrated. I don't know that if I that I thought through like what could what could come next from that. Um, so he stared. He stared at me and he asked me, you know, do I think I was gonna do? I think I'm a danger to myself or anybody else right now. And out of anger, I just said, man, I don't know what I might do. And I guess it's sort of important to to think about um, from the point of view of the deputy, what is the right response there? I don't know. But what, it, what ended up happening was, uh, without any words being said, he finished filling out the form. And then another deputy sort of ghosted to my right side and just was there and led me off to um, outside of the, the normal intake line, the normal procedures, and just led me to this little small room, had me strip. Um, he gave me like this green, heavy nylon type of dress type thing. Um, and then he walked me down where the, through the intake area to this, um, to this particular cell, a cell that I had never seen before. And he put me in there. He said no words to me. I said nothing to him. He closed the door behind me. And it turns out the cell that he put me in is what we would call a safety cell or a suicide cell. And this particular cell was completely covered with human feces and urine. Um, and it took me a moment for my senses to really sort of take it all in. But the first, this day, my birthday, where I was supposed to drop my son off and pick him back up, go to do this meeting with the university, pay some traffic fines or set up a, a payment plan to do so. Instead, I ended up going to jail and being in a 72 hour hold in the safety cell. Talk to us about the segregation in jail. So I don't know if it's it's clear to everybody, but when you first, um, it certainly wasn't clear to me. I, you know, I have friends who've been to jail. I have a couple of family members who've been to jail. But people don't oftentimes talk about the experiences. It's, um, you know, it's, it's one of these institutions that's kind of opaque. But even in Southern California, one of the first things that you experience almost immediately is this stark racial segregation. Now, I think custodial deputies would argue that this is necessary. Um, for the safety of the the prisoners themselves. There's very little evidence to support that, but um, it is something uh, of an institutional practice to segregate people by race. And, uh, and while there's, um, you know, there's legal standards that would bar this, those legal standards are sort of 
relaxed when it comes to ar- arguments about security. And so jails and prisons sort of uh, operate in this space where they're sort of allowed to do this. But I think if you just call a custodial deputy, they will tell you, or, or a correctional officer, they will tell you that we don't do that. Um, while they absolutely do. So you get into this space, you get into a, a permanent housing unit in a jail, um, at least in Southern California, and there is there are three showers, there are three phones, there are tables that are grouped into sets of threes, and everybody, every there's three because there are also three racialized groups in this particular jail system. So there are the blacks, and the blacks include anybody from the African diaspora that you can imagine who who sort of looks black according to what deputies may discern, determine. Then there are even Asians who are understood to be black in the sense of what it means, like who they're paired up with in this county jail, which is kind of a strange thing, but um, it is what it is. And then there are the Southsiders and Southsiders include anybody who is Latino or who looks Latino to deputies and anybody who looks indigenous to deputies. So peoples from indigenous nations are also included with the Southsiders. And then there are the woods and woods are anybody who looks like they're a white American or uh, according to what deputies determine that to be looking like. And so each phone, each group, each racialized group has its own phone. And it's not, it's not formally designated, but it is institutionally practiced whereby, so if you go into a housing unit, you will find that the phones are divided up according to each racial group. This mirrors what the custodial deputies themselves did. What they did was they would ask you during intake, do you get along with all races? And so long as your answer is essentially yes, um, if you say no, my assumption, because I don't know, I don't have data for this, but my assumption is that you end up in administrative segregation, which is like jail and for people who are already in jail. But if you say yes, what ends up happening is they send you to, um, you know, you get along with all races, then they send you to a general housing unit and they organize, um, they put you in, in two man cells according to your racial group. So you don't ask, you can make whatever argument you want to make about where you want, who you want to be in your, in your cell with you. But in the end, the deputies are going to determine all the blacks are going to be in the same cell with blacks, woods with woods, Southsiders with Southsiders. And they do this purposefully um, and, you know, without really any kind of input from the prisoners. But this level, like that signals for people at the um, signals for the prisoners themselves that race is important. It actually inflates the significance of race arbitrarily. Because I never met anybody who thought these racial politics, as they were known, are good or helpful or useful. And any kind, anytime we had an opportunity to relax them, we did. And so, um, but most of this is driven by what deputies decided to do. Um, it was totally unnecessary, but and it, it more than anything else, it sort of increased the likelihood of there being violence instead of decreasing it. It may have decreased uh, interracial violence, but it certainly increased intraracial violence. Now, you talked about the rep system. How mm-hmm. does that operate? So this is one of the strangest things uh, to me in this particular county jail system. And this is not unique to uh, Southern California. There are Texas had a system like this called the, the building tender system. Um, and there are other prison systems as well that have something similar to this. But in Southern California, in this particular county, the reps were prisoners, just like anybody else, right? So they were in there fighting their time, dealing, you know, their cases were yet to be adjudicated. They may have been in jail for two, three, four years. It just depends. Um, But in essence, the rep is uh, sort of a a representative for their particular racial group to deputies while in that particular housing unit. So 
let's take a housing unit. Let's say we're in a podular design housing unit. So in a podular design housing unit, you have a command center, a circle, where you only need really one or two deputies who can run the whole thing. And then connected to the command center are four day rooms. And each one of the day rooms will have two tiers of two-man cells. So you have all of the, and all of those cells and all four day rooms can be controlled by that one control room. In each day room, there will be three the, the members of the three racialized groups. How many there will be will be determined by sort of the natural inflows and outflows of prisoners coming in and out of this, this county jail system. But in each housing unit, there will be a rep for each one of the racial racialized groups um, in general. And the rep, whoops, so the wood rep, and then the uh, the black reps, or, or the rep for the blacks, or the rep for the Southsiders. The reps are the direct liaisons between the uh, custodial staff, the deputies, and the general population, while being members of the general population themselves. So the interesting thing here is they work almost like middle managers, except without all the privileges. They have all the responsibilities. Their main job is to make sure to maintain social order in the particular housing unit. So if the deputies find get or get word that there's some type of issue on the horizon, maybe there's some about to be a fight, they call the reps to the Sally Port for a meeting. They'll have a discussion about what they want to see done. Then the reps will take that information back to the general population and will tell us, you know, here's what we're going to do. Or here's how we're going to handle this. You know, maybe there's some high status person who's about to come into the housing unit or one who's about to leave. And there's a concern about how that's going to disrupt the order in the housing unit. So what ends up happening is the deputies will discuss things with the reps first, but now, but, but more, more than that, the reps become, um, you know, like a little bit of factotums, right? They end up doing a little bit of everything. And most of the time while you're in jail in a, in a popular housing unit, you're going to be in a cell, but the deputies allow the reps out to make these runs. So the hot water is outside of the cells. The only source of hot water is outside of the cells. The reps will go get hot water, fill it up with a very race specific cup, take that cup and use an empty potato chip bag to slide through the seam of the cell door and funnel water from the outside into your cell. They're also the ones who will take the newspaper and place it outside your cell door. They're also the ones that the deputies use to clean the housing unit in um, the day room area. They're also allowed to, in some cases, be out of the cell just to turn, turn the television. The extent to which the, the reps are used is up to the deputies, but the reps, more than anything else, they function at the bent to the benefit of the deputies more than anything else. So this makes it so that the deputies don't have to deal with every single issue that any general population prisoner may have because they can rely on the reps to sort of manage us. This is a way of sort of turning prisoners against themselves um, as you know, managing one another and making the job of, of general management of a housing unit much easier for deputies. Now, you found out some really interesting things about deputies. Can you share that with us? So one is, um, it's not, I should say, it's, it, this was one of those things that I found um, found out kind of by happenstance. I had been trying to, once I, I established for myself that I was going to be doing interviews and I was actually going to turn this into a study, and I shouldn't say that I was walking around with a pen and a pad, I wasn't doing that, but I was holding conversations with deputies whenever I got a chance to do so. So one of the first things I found was that if I wanted to have a conversation with a deputy, there could never be more than two or three other prisoners around. You, if you have more than three, in most cases, deputies just shut down. They wouldn't answer nothing you say. Um, I also learned that I needed to switch between what might be standard, you know, everyday common language to a more college educated diction as a way of disrupting the, the perception of, that they may have had of me. 
So this might mean, you know, I'd always start off with a question about themselves. I would ask them, you know, what made you want to be a deputy? And, you know, not everybody answered. Those who did, they tended to tell me that it was by happenstance. You know, the, the, the modal answer for why they became deputies wasn't, you know, this deep sense of justice and wanting to do the right thing or wanting to change the world. It wasn't that. It was, you know, this is a job. And, and it was easy, you know, it was easy to get this job. There was a test that was being held by the city. I, I you know, I went to, for the test for to be a probation officer or, or a um, custodial deputy or a sheriff's deputy. And I passed this test. I passed them both. And this one called me back first, or this one's offering a little bit more money. And so I, whereas I may have thought that people were going into law enforcement, at least in custodial work, because, you know, they thought they had this, this deep-seated sense of justice. They may have had that, but that turned out not to be the major motivator for why most of the deputies I spoke with said that they were doing it or why they said their, their colleagues did it as well. But I learned that you know, they, they tend to have a perspective on prisoners that doesn't allow for them to have a conversation with people. And I, I suppose to some degree this is understandable, um, but what I did to disrupt that was just to present myself as something a little bit different. Um, and this might mean just using like using the word stratification instead of um, just in everyday conversation. So it's very unique as a, as a sociological term, but it just means the distribution of the, the unequal distribution of resources. But if I can use that or if I can say social control, right, it's for me, it's not a super sophisticated term. But in everyday conversation, that's not a term that everybody uses. And what would happen is a deputy would inevitably turn to me and, and give me a look of you know, who are you? Why are you <laughs> like, how'd you get in here? Or you don't belong here being able to speak, you know, this well with me. Um, but in disarming them that way, I was able to get, you know, learn a lot about why they took the jobs. And a lot of times it had nothing to do with, with justice. Um, some of their perspectives on why they do their job and the way and the, the character with which they do it. You know, the, the older deputies tended to be much more relaxed. They tended to have a much more live and let live type, type of perspective. The younger ones tended to be much more, um, you know, they mirrored what you would see in gang structure. And it's in the sense that the younger gang members tend to be the ones who are pushing the lines, pushing the action and doing most violence. And older gang members tend to have already put in the work, so they would say. Um, and as a result, they tend to be a little bit more calm, a lot calmer relative to the, to the younger ones. And you see the same type of um, trajectory in of uh, aggression in custodial deputies, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be aggressive. Now, you talked about the trustee pod. What was that experience like? So the, the trustee pod, uh, to be in a trust a trustee in this particular county jail meant that you had um, both been sentenced and so you've been convicted and sentenced to, to jail time under a year and that you were um, given a job in the jail. So the trustee pod you know, you have to remember that these are prisoners just like everybody else, right? They're not unique or special. What makes them unique or special is the the formal designation of trust trustee. So that's literally it. But deputies tended to treat people in the trustee pods much better. They treated the trustees better. They wore trustees wore a um, county. They wore a green outfit instead of the county oranges. Um, they. You know, they were given up the opportunity, the benefit of whatever the particular job they had. So if you had a job where you cleaned, it meant you had access to cleaning supplies for your own cell. If you worked in the kitchen, you had access to, to other types of food that the average prisoner didn't have access to. Um, you might have more time out of your cell. You might have um, a conversation with a deputy that's less, uh, you know, 
organized around them denigrating you. Um, but in general, you it just was a better experience. And the one trustee pod that I was in had access to natural sunlight, which is not something I had in any other cell or any other housing unit. And you know, not only that, but the cell, the, the whole housing unit was just cleaner. There were no racial politics. You could shower in whatever shower you wanted to. You could sit wherever you wanted to. You could interact with whoever you wanted to. You could share whatever food you wanted to with whomever you wanted to. Um, and the deputies didn't organize things according to race either. In the cell that I was in, it was me and two other guys. One was Latino, the other one was white. Um, so at the, at the organizational level, what deputies did, that signaled how we were going to interact just amongst ourselves as prisoners in the housing unit. It was just a much better experience. You know, it's, and we have to keep in mind, we're still in jail and you never forget that you're in jail. You never forget how bad it is. But if you are comparing jail experiences, the trustee pod is a significantly better place to be than in just everyday average uh, general population. Now, you describe the experience of being moved from one location to the next. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the incident that occurred in the middle of the night. Can you tell the audience about that? Um, let me know if this is the one you're, you're referring to. Um, so there's a, a time in which um, people, so when, when deputies are going to transfer somebody from jail to prison, they usually do that around 1230 midnight. And there are times when um, people are coming into jail pretty much all throughout the day and all throughout the night. In one particular incident, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is the one you're referring to, but I was sitting at my cell door, just sort of staring out in the window, just looking into the day room um, and, and nothing in particular. But I heard uh, custodial deputies yelling at this one man as he's being brought into the room. And so you see him being handed off by three male deputies to, at the time, three women deputies, um, which is a rare occurrence to have three women who were deputies, like running a particular pod. Um, and he wasn't responding to anything they were telling him to do. You know, they were yelling at him to go into his cell. He refused. He turned his back. He sat on the tables in the day room instead of following their instructions. They threatened to put him in, quote, in rec time, which means to send him outside in the cold in his boxers and his T-shirt and just let him just be. Um, you know, a form of corporal punish, uh, corporal punishment. Um, he didn't care. They threatened to write him up. And he didn't. He didn't listen to any of that. Then, at some point, um, realizing that he wasn't going to respond to anything that these deputies were saying, they called um, one of the Southsider reps out from that from his cell and had him walk through the day room over to the Sally Port. And the deputies had a conversation with him. Then he didn't say he didn't give them whatever the information they wanted. So he goes back to the cell. They call another high status uh, Southsider out of his cell and they have a conversation with him. And what I learned was that uh, later on was that this particular guy, he had been a green light had been given to beat this man up for something that he had done wrong. Whatever violation, whatever code he had violated, um, he had violated. And um, the Southsider decided that he was he was going to be allowed. They were going to, you know, they okayed the beating of this particular man. And the beating was waiting for him in the cell. So he refused to go to the cell because he didn't want to be beaten up, but he refused to snitch because he didn't want that sort of reputation to follow him throughout the entire jail system. So what's he ended up doing is just being insolent towards deputies as his only real mode of safety. I think I think about this particular man often. I, I ask myself, like, what, what should have happened? You know, I, you would like to think that deputies would have understood what was going on in this situation, but instead they leaned upon the very people who had okayed the beating in the first place, which is a very strange thing to do that they're unaware, you know, so unaware of the, the politics in the jail 
that they didn't think, you know, maybe this man's afraid to go into the cell for a reason and just threatening to send him in there isn't really solving the problem. And neither is calling Southside or reps out to t have a conversation about why this guy won't listen. Um, but, you know, this is sort of the ridiculousness of what it means to be in jail. Now, you talked about your cellmates. What was the worst experience dealing with the cellmate? Um, this is hard to say, the, the worst experience. I, I don't know if there's one that sort of stands out in my mind. I think the thing that is most problematic about having a cellmate is we have to remember that we don't know each other. You know, the whole cell is like nine by seven. Um, I can touch the walls with my arms. You know, um, you don't know these people. We don't know. I don't necessarily know immediately why they're in there and they don't know why I'm in. And not that it even matters, but people enter jail with all kinds of different dispositions. You know, somebody might have been I had one one cellmate who was um, seemed to be recovering or, or going through some, some type of drug detox. Um, had others who who spoke to themselves at night, talked to themselves, was dealing with constant pain. And that constant pain created a, you know, a difficult situation for him and it made it difficult for me as well. Um, and I think it's just the, the constant pressure of being in a small space with somebody and all of the things that come with that, their, their gas, their breathing, the trouble sleeping, their typical proclivities, the types of conversations you may or may not have. Um, all of that in one space, the, the whole of the experience is really bad. There isn't really one thing that sort of sticks out to me as this was particularly awful. You know, everyone's sharing each other's smells and and having no sense of privacy, having to go to the restroom with somebody, you know, right in your same, your toilet is next to your bed, um, which is next to this other person's uh, bunk. And it's just, the whole experience is just troubling. Now, you always said this, um, it is what it is. That came up several times in the book. Explain it to our audience. So I think that there are, or I came to understand that there are different philosophies that we may have for making sense of penal time. So one philosophy, and I think when I was more religious, I probably would have adopted this one, and that is to determine that the experiences that you're having are part of some type of divine plan. You know, the, the typical phrasing for this is uh, everything happens for a reason. Um, you know, and so you you look at the, the terrible experiences that you have, and they are traumatic and terrible. There's no getting around that. Um, it's not just being removed from society that makes jail so bad. There's an extra layer of just degradation that you experience on a regular basis. You will never forget it. Um, you will be forever transformed in one way or another um, by having been to jail. And you have to make sense of that. You've got to come up with something that, you know, why am I experiencing this? Aside from whatever charges you may have faced, and it's even aside from whether you even did it, those things aside, you have to be able to come up with some explanation for why this new thing that you're experiencing, constant cold, sleep deprivation, constant hunger, why, why are these things considered to be legitimate and justifiable responses to whatever it is that I may have, I've been charged with doing here. And we have to remember that most people, the 67% the of the people who are in jail haven't yet been adjudicated. So they haven't been found guilty of anything. They're still awaiting their trials or they at least the outcome of whatever that's going to happen in their case. And so while you're in there, some people will decide that this is part of God's plan, that they're there to learn a lesson, 
Um, you know, this is, they kind of mix it with karma, but in general, the sense is that I'm here to learn a lesson. And once I learn the lesson, then, you know, some good thing will happen for me. Right. But all of this is purposeful. None of this is by happenstance. On the other hand, and that perspective is kind of, it is as it should be, right? Things are happening the way they're supposed to happen. There's a plan. You need to trust in that. And there's a certain level of comfort that can come with that. I think my perspective was on the other side. And that is, it is what it is. And this is a way of acknowledging that, man, sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes you go into a situation and you understand that the outcome is going to be negative and you do it anyways, because it is what it is. You don't have any control over it. Um, or the control that you have is so minimal that as, as, as to be vanishing. And so that perspective doesn't allow you to rely on the idea that there's some grand plan, that there's some meaning in what it is you're experiencing. It doesn't allow you to, to say, well, this terrible, th- you know, the reason why I was uh, beaten up by, by other prisoners in this moment is because I'm supposed to learn some lesson here. Or the reason why all these arbitrary punishments that I'm experiencing in jail um, are happening is because I'm, you know, this is part of some divine plan. Instead, you're just like, this is part of the experience. This is what it is right now. And it just kind of is what it is. I don't have, I can't do much more with this and it's not worth my time to, to invest more emotional um, energy into this. So you just kind of accept it. You accept it for what it is. What message would you want the reader to leave with after they read your book? That's a good question. I really hope that people are profoundly changed emotionally. Um, when I wrote this book, and it's a very difficult task, I'll say, what I hoped would happen um, is all of the emotional energy that I passed through, that the experiences that I had, I hope that somebody who's never been to jail will be able to smell it, to will be able to sort of taste the food that I tasted, will have a sense of the things that I saw and the feelings that I had, and um, and will come away changed, right? We'll be able to say, man, I, this place is, you know, right under my nose. I, I pass by jails all the time in downtown, whatever city or town I'm in, and I have no sense of what these people are experiencing. At the same time, I hope the people who've been to jail will see themselves reflected in the experiences I described, will be able to say, I know that experience. I know what that's like. And then academically, I hope that I've explained this in a way and offered something, a a serious contribution to the way that we make sense of jails and punishment in the United States. And hopefully, you know, this will spark somebody else to want to do something about it. I don't pretend to be a policy oriented person, but I I hope that I've done my job of of explaining what it means to go to jail in such a way that it gives armor to those or weapons or I should say ammunition to those who want to do something about what what punishment looks like in these United States. Well, we've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what your next project will be? Ah, so two things I'm working on right now. One, I am one of the gentlemen that that I was in jail with. I found him and um, I was there the day that he served, uh, that he signed his deal for 14 years. And he and I are are, um, currently conducting interviews with him to get a sense of what that experience was like um, and learn a little bit more about his life. At the same time, I'm currently sort of at the very beginning, the nascent stages of doing a study of mental health um, and emotional well-being, actually amongst custodial deputies. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Those are the next two projects. They still deal with jails in one to one degree or another, but I'm leaning into uh, the issues of mental health a little bit more. Sounds very interesting. We look forward to that. Thank you so much for being on the show. 
Absolutely. Thank you.